Rachel from Operation Opera, and Elisa and I this week discussed with composer, pianist, and teacher Scott Hiltzik uh, about what it is to be all of those things. Um, He recently had a production off-Broadway of a play that he co-wrote and produced called Clarence and Me, and he's awesome, so enjoy. So, history about Scott and I. So, when I first moved to L.A., um, I got a job te- uh, teaching. No, well, I was doing that too, but I got a job at Disney Hall um, as a person working in the bookstore, and which I subsequently got fired for, but that's another story. <laughs> it's a story for another day. But um, it was probably one of my first days there, I think, and mm-hmm. you'd had a piece premiered. Mm-hmm. And not, at, not, at, uh, not with the L.A. Phil, but with other big orchestras but, yeah yeah, and, yeah and, recently yeah yeah that, that, that maybe a month earlier yeah and yeah. so you 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 came in and and everyone was oh congratulations da, 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 da. and then we started up a conversation and we've been friends ever since and that was what 12 Ooh. years and three months wow there you go yeah maybe two months yeah uh, give or take give or take <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. So, and then Great. Scott is a composer and pianist, and he teaches um, people piano, and apparently now has a couple of really great students mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> in and, various ways. And, and Rachel and I are both uh, involved in theater in one way or another. That's right. Well, Scott, do you want to talk a little bit about just what you write and why you write it? Hmm... You want to think about that? Uh, yeah. Let, let, let's, yeah. Let's, 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 well, what I write. I write whatever seems, it's funny, uh, Alyssa, I'm, I'm looking at your picture as if I'm talking to you. It's, yeah, Alyssa, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, she has your picture right on the screen. It's, it's very um, striking. Um, so, Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a nice photo. Uh, I write whatever is exciting at the time. So that's how I ended up having an anthem-like experience, um, having a show that uh, I was a playwright and the composer and the subject of one of the two actors in the play. I was portraying me and another was playing, portraying one of my students um, because I happened to be sitting on a bus next to a man who happened to be a playwright and we got the idea of writing a play together about my experience with uh, teaching an older African-American beginning piano student. So I went in that direction. Um, uh, About a year ago, I was um, uh, improvising a little piece on, on the piano late at night, and I happened to record it, and then I happened to uh, transcribe it, and then I was... Uh, playing it as a flautist came to my uh, studio and he loved it so much. He said, arrange this for, for a flute orchestra because we're recording it in a couple weeks. Wow. And so I did it. So it's kind of like that, whatever it is that uh, seems exciting. I, I would guess that that's probably... Um, and, and if I narrowed um, my focus a little bit, I'd probably uh, be you know, much more uh, performed and have an identity as this. But it's great fun just following wherever the the muse leads for me. So I don't know if that's... A, no, 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 that's it? awesome. I, okay. It actually makes me think about um, one of the first times that we worked together. And, and I think, Elisa, you might, you might have some thoughts about this too. Like when it comes to anybody else's... Imp- in, anyone else's interpretation of what you create. Like, I remember once, Scott, you and I were sitting and you you were playing some pieces for me and I said, well, what if it did this? Because it sounds more like, and, and you, just, you just, you shook your head and you were like, just, just listen. It is, this is what it is. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh, you mean, yeah, okay. It is, this is what you, this is, 
it's its own thing. It's not a part of a, a specific genre. It is an amalgamation, which is your art. Right, right, right. It's the, the art of listening without injecting our biases and uh, I don't know what exactly the, the 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 cleanest way of saying it, but but our our uh, past musical experiences traditions maybe I'm sorry what sorry traditions yeah traditions and all the things that we've grown up with even the things that we we worked hard to uh, develop. Um, our understanding of how to play something in this style or that style and how to do this sort of ornament. Um, you know, all of those things, they're, they're beautiful and yet they also can get in the way. And, and when you look at a person, you don't see, look at them and say, God, you know, you're great. You look a little bit like so-and-so, but if you would just have a, a quieter tone of voice and wear less gaudy shirt, then, then you know, I might like you. I mean, you don't do that. I mean, hopefully, or maybe we all do that, but it's not really conducive to having good relationships. <laughs> you know, like you, you see what it is and then you, you try to understand it. And, and I think with art, it's really important that we understand the artist and what they're trying to do. Um, Definitely. I've, I've had a lot, actually, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of living composers. And I'm thinking back to, especially to my, the, the years around my graduate school experience, um, because I was asked to, um, to perform a piece by a living composer. Um, actually, I'm not sure. I can't remember if that was the first thing. I don't think it was, but whatever I did when I was first asked to do something and they figured out that I was a good enough musician uh -huh. <laughs> to, to work it out, you know, because it's a vocalist, you know, when your pitch isn't in the accompani accompaniment and you're having to sort of pick it out of thin air, that's, it's, it's a trickier, it's a different level of, oh, uh, of music making from what we're mostly accustomed to. Uh, and bring back I tonality. Did, Sorry, go on. Yeah, I did, uh, I did Milton Babbitt, uh, Phonemina, and uh, and then Yehudi Weiner came in and, and I sang one of his song cycles. And it was interesting because I worked with many student composers um, mm -hmm. who were writing um, very interesting sort of different, you know, cutting edge sort of things. And, um, and I never once thought to myself that it was open to my own interpretation. I wanted to do it exactly as they wanted it done. And I tried to stay as true to what was printed on the page as possible. And, uh, and when I worked with, um, Mr. Weiner, who's, uh, won a Pulitzer prize, um, he was so open to my ideas on his work, which I think he wrote, I want to say it was probably in the mid eighties or so that he wrote this song cycle. So it was much before, you know, the time that I performed it, but, um, it's, it's interesting for me to work with different composers because some of them, um, are very curious to see what you'll do with what they've written and others are more interested in you doing it precisely the way that it's been written. So <clears throat> there was one, in fact, one, one more story I'll relate about, a a living composer who lives here in Utah, where I am now, mm. um, tonight. Mm -hmm. um, at this she, moment. Uh, okay. What was that? I said, yeah, at okay. this moment. <laughs> the bags are packed, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, and she, she was so funny because she really wanted me to reduce my vibrato. And it was at a time when I was in graduate school, when I was told by a coach that in order to be to have vocal line and to be a good singer, you had to have consistent vibrato on every note. And I took that to heart. I was like, "Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, you know, here I'm gonna I am." Shake I'm gonna shake the out of this if I no, mm -hmm. sorry. What? <laughs> what you no, I said I'm gonna shake the out of this. Like, no <laughs> way. <laughs> Oh my gosh, how did I miss that? I've been studying voice for 15 years already, right? and no one ever told me that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I got this. But then I worked with this composer, and she was like, 
could you just sing it a little bit? Like, I don't want straight tone, but could you just sing it a little bit more straight? And I thought, oh my gosh, she's asking me to use a pop voice and I am an opera singer. And I, you know, and, but she would, mm-hmm. anytime I did it, she was like, it's so beautiful. And now I listen back and I'm like, wow, that really is beautiful. But at the time I had no perspective on it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's just interesting um, it's, it's wonderful to work with living composers and to be able to collaborate as artists and mm-hmm. to be able to get their perspective on your art mm-hmm. in addition to bringing your art to theirs. Exactly. And that's one of the beautiful things about, uh, about collaboration is if you understand who you're working with and you trust them, then you don't have to have an attitude about it. You can just kind of relax, and and then they say, oh, you know, maybe if we tried it this way, this would be great, and it's beautiful. Um, There's a CD, a a concert pianist, Alina Kristova, um, who also went to Manhattan School of Music. Um, uh, Represent? Yeah, there you go. She she, um, did a CD of my piano music, and there was one spot. um, We had... uh, we had talked about a couple of things over the phone, but but the day before the recording session started, um, we had a rehearsal, and uh, you know everything was pretty much the way the music was um, with her own feeling of it. But there was this one piece, um, one of the movements of Tributaries, which was the title of the CD. Uh, it's a it beautiful had, CD. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and and she really does play beautifully. Mm-hmm. But there's one spot where um, it dies away, um, and then it starts after a fermata. It starts. Um, uh, well, actually, it was supposed to uh, uh, diminuendo into this soft passage and. She did it exactly the opposite. She just did this crescendo, and the spot that was supposed to be pianissimo was fortissimo. And and I'm sitting there, like, listening to this thing, and I'm looking at the score, knowing how I wanted it, and, and at the same time realizing, kind of laughing to myself, that it was better that way. Like, mm-hmm. there was no doubt it was better, and that she understood it better, you know, than I did at that moment. And, and I thought that was really cool, you know? I think that brings up a really interesting idea about, you know, what happens when we take ego out of our art? Mm-hmm. Like, what can happen? What can you create mm-hmm. when, when it stops being about self and it starts being about the work? Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly it, because, you know, I had that, I had, I, maybe... 30% of me was like, how dare she ignore my... <laughs> but then I had a laugh because it was ridiculous because it sounded so good, what she was doing. But I did have that thought, you know, like, oh my God, she just completely ignored, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is fascinating. Um... But if you understand who you're working with and you respect one another, then it's all good. I mean, it, it can't not be good. You know, and this whole thing about the the... Uh, you know, who's in charge. Well, nobody's in charge, really. Um, uh, another funny story. Well, I, mean, I don't know if that was funny, but... <laughs> um, I, I, as a composer, I try to forget things rather quickly. So I write something, I really fully immerse myself in it, try to make it, you know, to craft it as best I can, and then I'm done. I'm on to the next piece. And so I don't live with pieces the way, you know, some some composers or even songwriters do, where they do the same song over and over and over and over. So if I'm in the role of having to play my own music, lots of times it's not, um, it's not as fresh. And my perspective on it is, is as if I'm a pianist on this new piece and I'm not the composer. I'm trying to execute it as best I can, even though there's a vague uh, residue of a memory of, of how it's supposed to go, of course. Um, so I was doing this concert, um, a recital at the San Francisco Conservatory with a wonderful 
a French hornist who's from the symphony, Jonathan Ring, and we were doing a set of my pieces that we arranged for piano and, and, um, and horn. And he said, well, will you count it off? And I said, mm -hmm. um, I said, well, actually, you know, why don't you do it? Because you've been living with it. And the look on his face was like, what are you, crazy? You're the composer. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I had to insist that I said, no, actually, you probably feel this really uh, intimately. Um, and, and I trust that. So, um, uh, and that's what we did, and it was fine. But but it was just it was kind of shocking for him to you know the composer isn't gonna um, so I think you just have to be open to what what is best in any moment whether whatever role you're in and as you just, as you said really just kind of take your your ego and your um, you know your your conditioning your biases out of the equation and what's gonna work best. You know, um, and with every easier said than done, though, right? <laughs> yeah, it is easier said than done. But if, like if both people, but if both people are interested in doing good work, then it's really important to do. You know, absolutely, and that's honestly that's that's a lot of what what Rachel and I are trying to do with the transparent singers is taking the dispense with pretense, right? So it's taking the ego out of it. And one thing I always noticed. Um, personally, in performing new works um, was the freedom that I felt. Uh, because there is a certain amount of ego and status tied up in classical music and tied up in understanding the tradition and, under and doing it right. Well, she and... didn't do that the way that Scotto did. And you're <laughs> right, like, yeah, right, right. tell me about right. it. I don't need the reminder. Oh, you know, oh right, she's not right. respecting the score. Yeah. And oh, she... You know, she doesn't have vibrato in every note or whatever. You know, <laughs> whatever. Like everyone's got these preconceived notions of what classical music should sound like, and especially the standard repertoire and the ones that everyone's familiar with. And I, in fact, I, I sang one of my favorite experience, performing experiences of all time was performing um, Tandun's Water Passion after St. Matthew, mm -hmm. because even though it had stratospherically high notes, um, which, you know, are always the pressure notes, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it was not classical music, even though it was done as an homage to Bach and to the St. Matthew Passion, um, here it was, you know, these percussionists were playing bowls of water, and they were mm -hmm. they were letting the water drip down in, in, in certain patterns, and, and this was, you know, it was, it was just a different kind of music making. And, and we did the uh, Tibetan... Uh, what's it called the throat singing mm -hmm. and we like we had to do a bunch of weird things as a part of this this piece wow you could I do mean, that could you actually do that the throat yeah. singing oh that's cool yeah hmm. yeah I mean, yeah exactly i expanded my skill set and then mm -hmm. like when i had to sing the high e natural it was just like it was part of the expression there was nothing about it that i felt like i was having to walk in someone else's footsteps and do it the way it had been done before sure there had been other performances of this piece before this was the premiere where i was um and it was very well received which was gratifying but um i wasn't the first person to sing this piece at the same time i felt a freedom to to interpret the music and to interpret the characters i was portraying very freely and to use my own artistry there and not feel like I was shackled, you know, to, to tradition and to expectations of other people. And that was so wonderful and, and, and freeing and allowed me to embody the fullness of my potential as an artist mm -hmm. in a way that I wasn't otherwise able to do. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and it probably sounded great too. A high E natural. I just want to. I just want to say that again. What you were saying. I have to say it because I can't sing it. Yeah, okay. it's a high note. It's a high note. I had to sing some E flats and some D's as well, but it oh was the gosh. E natural that was like the. You know, you know hold that, on. that was that, that's actually one of my one of my one of the struggles that I have because I'm a a heftier soprano. It's 
it's always tough with new music or it often is when someone, you know, says, are you interested? You know, they're like, oh, you're a soprano. I have a piece written for soprano. And I often get um, approached by composers and they hand me this thing where it's like, you know, high F above P. And I'm just like, no, I'm not. I'm not that kind of a soprano. <laughs> and 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 it's always kind of, you know, it's hard. It's hard to to know that you don't have a certain skill set, even even if no one has done it before. You know, it's it's just not going to be me. And that's okay. You know, it's okay. I know when. I know my limitations. So, but um, I don't know why I said yeah, that. I guess my point yeah. is just saying it wasn't Mozart, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't me trying to sing a high natural according to a specific well-known style, you know, where there Absolutely. was so much to misstep. Yeah, I have a, yeah, one of my favorite moments with, with a teacher was when they said, you have too many, too many voices in your ears. And, mm. and speaking specifically about an aria that I'm working on, he's like, there are too many singers in your ears. And, and I think that's an interesting idea. Um, hmm. And it's, and it's probably true, you know, there, there comes a time when you just have to turn everything off and just, and just sing it as though you never have heard it before. Because, because frankly, the majority of the audience, um, well, maybe not the majority, but the majority of the audience that we're interested in introducing to it hasn't ever heard it. So they don't have those kind yeah. of ideas and that preconceived, right. you know, And we're, we're back to our, oh, sorry. No, no, I'm done. Um, we're back to one of our favorite quotes. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. Is that, that's a great and quote. I don't remember. It's so much to do with Who ego said that? too, right? Who said that? Uh, who was it? Who said it? I could Google it. I'm going to Google it right now. <laughs> okay. Google? Well, com comparison <laughs> leads to, uh, unhappiness. Yeah. Usually. Almost yeah. always. Yeah. I think that's why people, uh, are miserable after they're on Facebook most oh, of the man. time or Instagram. I think Instagram <laughs> is even worse because they like soften the, the edges of the yeah. photos. And... Well, it, if, if people didn't compare themselves to anybody else, then, then there's no, there's no feeling good in the puffed up manner. And there's no feeling bad in the putting yourself down manner. Mm -hmm. You're just, you know, it's just not, it's not related. And this sort of comes back to some sort of Buddhist ideas, yeah? I mean, this sort of being, being in and of yourself enough. Mm -hmm. mm. I like. I have a result for Mr. Google. Mm -hmm. It's our favorite man in the arena, Mr. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Really? You were just talking about yeah, it. Yeah, he's the one. He, yeah, he's had some Daring Greatly quote that we love as well. Yes. So read that that quote one more time. Comparison is? Comparison is the thief of joy. Thief of joy. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about composers and we're treating them, you know, like the canon the 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 ideals the 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 epitome of perfection but they were dealing with the same things themselves absolutely you know i mean i'm not bach but you know this is what i'm doing <laughs> you right. know or or whomever they're dealing with beethoven with mozart right beethoven you probably had that struggled. monkey on his back for a good 30 years <laughs> you know at least um and it's it's the same kind of thing and so at what point do we grow up and realize we are who we are and we don't have to be compared to anyone you know well i think that's actually a really important sort of way to describe it or, or thing to sort of when it's comparison against another person who is clearly also imperfect right that i think is where where we really struggle um, I think there are, there are certain things that are, that are worthy to have as ideals, mm -hmm. but, but I don't think that like comparison, like you just have to be very aware of, um, of, of what you hope to gain out of it, you know, if it, because so much of it just ends up being like painful, 
comparison is just a, pa- a painful thing unless mm-hmm. it's about a comparison that is in the pursuit of something great and that you're willing to you're willing to, to not um, maybe willing to not excel potentially I don't know I had this conversation sort of gathering my thoughts as I say this um, I had this I had this conversation the other day and we've talked about this before but um, oh no it was earlier today I was having a conversation um, with a friend of mine and and following up about um, this course I've just taken but one of the things that came out was was the conversation that I listened to recently with Elizabeth Gilbert and Brene Brown about um, what you know, the, there's the common saying like what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail mm-hmm. and instead of that what would you do even if you fail and I think that brings such freedom and takes away comparison because if you aren't worried about winning then you, then you no longer have to judge yourself in a way that is detrimental to your well-being I don't know so you're saying yeah, both are useful. Prove. Yeah. Right. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What would What would you do if you knew you would fail? Yeah. If you, you that that it might happen, like you know, if if it's just faith, right. what would you do? Right. You'd probably do what had meaning for you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and be fine with it. Yeah. Elisa, did you have a thought or? No, I was just sort okay. of reveling in that. Yeah. I, I really, like, I, that's something that I need. I need to come up with a daily mantra that involves that, what we just arrived at yeah. right there. Yeah, I think that's so important, and it's it's such, a, it's such a daily struggle, I think, for us as artists, and I'll speak for myself personally, for me, for sure. So I was just sort of letting that sink in. The struggle, <laughs> specifically, what is the struggle? The struggle is, is dealing with the your you know your what's what's the word your own expectations of like where you should or should not be Uh what you should have accomplished like going okay that okay well that's a that's yeah exactly yeah yeah and that actually ties into what what we were talking about earlier which is like one of the in one of our early conversations uh with scott and i i we were talking about, you know, goals and such. And, and I said, if I'm not... if she, I, she was 21, right? Yeah. You're 21, right? Yeah. And I said, if I'm not... I probably said famous. If I'm not famous by the time I'm 27, like, my life will be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yep. and I think on my 27th birthday, he was like, how you doing, kid? Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but she wasn't laughing about it. I mean, That's she right. was dead serious. Yeah. That if, oh, if I, by, I, by tw- I know, Rachel. Yeah, right. <laughs> By 27. How long have you guys known each other? Uh, Three years? Four years? What was that? Three, four years, something like that? Yeah, it'll be four years in January, I think, or in February or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But we've spent a lot of time together, and we've gotten to know each other really well, and we've had a lot of of deep conversations. Yeah, it's sort of been... I mean, I think before we started recording any of them, we, we had been doing them for many years like two and a half years of, of really great deep conversations before we were like let's just yeah let's just record these <laughs> Press the red so, so did so elisa did you have any of that yourself not not any the of... specific timeline but if i don't uh you know whatever if i'm not president of the united nations or or head the opera division of the united nations by is there an opportunity you know, yeah, right, right. I'm like, hey, maybe that's open. There should be. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> vacancy. <laughs> so. Um, I would say for me, I think where I got into trouble was um, I sort of I sort of was too willing to take shortcuts, I think, growing up. And um, also, I didn't I didn't. I didn't ever have the long way indicated to me very clearly. I didn't understand the work that would eventually go at like what I'm doing now, the work that I'm now doing. Um, I never, it's not that I wasn't willing to work. Um, I mean, when I was really young, I was probably pretty lazy, but um, mm-hmm. once I was in graduate school and beyond, I really busted my butt and I really 
wanted to understand what a foundation of technique looked like for the for the human voice and for my voice in particular. Um, and I just couldn't find the information that I needed. Um, try as I might, it was overcomplicated and it was, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Um, Mm -hmm. trying to assimilate all these concepts and strategies and, um, band-aids as we call them to, to create something that was sustainable and something that was consistent and something that I could rely on. And, um, yeah, I think, I think for me, the performance, the end always justified the means. And so I would just sort of cut corners and, and I never really was in it for the journey at all. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was always sort of the payoff. I was always looking forward to the payday. And, um, I, I, now I'm learning how to, uh, how to, how I'm realizing how much there is to learn from the journey and how much it really is about that. It's about the journey and about the means and not the end. Mm-hmm. And the means are their own end. And so, yeah. So I think the biggest takeaway from that, the previous conversation that I was reveling in was um, just letting go of the need to prove myself and the need to have that result, you know, to be able to say, I accomplished this. And to just say, you know, every day, brick by brick, is enough for me. Yeah, I think um, I think I reached that probably a few years ago, after working with my mentor up in Santa Barbara. Actually, Scott sat with me and like talked me off the ledge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we had we had, was it Thai food. I can't remember Indian or Thai. Mm-hmm. We we were we were eating and. And I was, I was really struggling because I had just had a coaching that just wrecked me and and one of many coachings that had wrecked me Mm -hmm. and it had just gotten to the point where it was like, you know what, I think you need to step away from this because I was, I was, I was searching for that result. I was searching for, am I good enough yet? Is it time now? Is it ready now? And, and, and the thing is, I think when it comes to technique, you know when it's ready. I think you'll just know. You know, just like you know with a lot of things in your life. It's mm-hmm. like, it's there. It's time. And until that happens, it's the most nerve-wracking thing in the world because, like, you you, you go on faith, right? You're like, mm-hmm. I think it might happen. I'm hoping because I'm still here. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. But why would you... Why would one put themselves it's okay through... you can say why would you do this to because it's all because it's it's anyone that that is very serious about you know creating art of any kind yeah why would you do this if you like really <laughs> the amount of time the amount of energy the amount of stress all of it the amount of money oh, it's crazy <laughs> why would you do this if you want to get a carrot at the end of the day. It doesn't make any sense because you may get a reward or you may not. And and a lot of that, as we know, is is just circumstances. There's so many people that are very materially successful in in the arts and maybe not great artists and there are other people that are really great artists and are not successful materially at all you know Mm -hmm. van gogh i mean i think he sold one painting in his life and that was to his brother (laughs) you know it's always hard when it's just to the family you you know know, but when your mom buys 50 copies of your cd and you're like i'm supposed to feel good about this (laughs) yeah what does she do with it she gives them. She gives them out. She Got does. It. Yeah. God. Well, that's what Theo probably did with with Vincent. You know. Yeah. But but if you really love doing what you're doing, you already have the reward. Yeah. And you don't. You know. And so then, as you were saying, Elisa, the the brick by brick part of it is actually really enjoyable. You know, if you get to that point now, something might come along and you might get, uh, you know, a big performance or a role in a production or a recording, 
you know, contract or something or singing a movie, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's fine, but that's not why we do it. And if it is why we do it, I think it's it's not a very uh, healthy or rational thing to do. Um, there's a lot easier ways of, of uh, you know, getting material stuff. You know, being a <laughs> being a classical musician or a, <laughs> or a composer really isn't you know high on the list. You know, um, no. so. That- yeah, there was a there was a joke tonight at dinner when we were talking about some 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 billionaires and and someone said, oh, these musicians, and then, and then everyone just presumed to laugh. You know, it's like, oh no, no, not musicians. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it's just not. Well, Andrea Bocelli's doing okay for himself. You know what's <laughs> fascinating? So here's something that's fascinating. Andre Andrea Bocelli. I'm pretty sure the recording that I put on my newsletter for this last month of, um, what's his name? Who's the Pavarotti. guy? Pavarotti. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure Bocelli just listened to that like 7,000 times because there are inflections, there are specific choices. I'm like, that's exactly how Bocelli does it, except it's not, mm-hmm. you know, the, the palette isn't quite as high and it doesn't ring quite as much and whatever, you know, but be at different voices and all and a myriad of other things. But like, um, but I, it's just very interesting. I don't know that that has anything to do with what we're talking about. It's just something that I comparison. thought. Comparison. Comparison. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just compared, didn't I? No, no. He no, just, Bocelli was comparing. He, oh, he stole all the was... joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I squashed it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Because that's the thing, right? The only thing in the world that hasn't already been is you that's it yes and and i found a formula i i wish i had the proper but i don't i I jotted down some notes and they stayed with me on a sticky um and it's important even though i don't know where it came from um for this whole brick by brick thing the daily um loving enjoying the journey or whatever Mm -hmm. it sounds so trite but it's so true um and so it's a four-step thing. Permission is step one. Step two is curiosity. Step three, attention. And step four, practice. So I think as artists, we are, uh, I can speak for myself. I am, as an artist, I'm in danger of taking myself too seriously sometimes, which, um, which is the thief of curiosity. Actually, I feel like in order to be curious, you have to, you have to have permission to explore and to fail, to make mistakes. To Um, be silly. And Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. To play. And and that's why I love that. I love that permission, curiosity, attention, practice. So once you find it, once you, you're poking around and you find the thing, then you draw your attention. and then you're and you're paying attention to and then and repeat that and you practice that and it's just a wonderful wonderful formula that i wish i could attribute to someone because it's not my idea but i love it and good job whoever you are whoever they are (laughs) trademark Hmm. (laughs) anyway what do you think about that rachel permission like giving yourself permission I mean, it's certainly a liberating thing to stop judging yourself and to like, you know, allow yourself to be wherever you are in whatever condition you're in. Um, That's probably one of the most liberating things because it's, uh, that's vulnerability, right? That's, um, that's the openness that allows you to, to express and be you know, and, and, and be touched by something, um, mm. to both give and take, right. Which is, I think, necessary for art. Um, don't you feel like as a student that you were always looking to your teacher for permission? Like, I remember just thinking like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need someone else to tell me that I can do this or that I need to do that. Or, you know, you're looking for direction and guidance and permission 
And I think as you graduate, you know, we're always students as artists, but as you become a master and as you're, you're sort of embodying that, the master within you, you have to begin to give yourself permission. You can't be waiting for it from, for someone, from someone else. Right. Well, actually, you know I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, Scott, this might be one that would be really good for you to talk about being that you've taught for so many years. Like, mm-hmm. is there a point when students become the master? Like, is there a point when they can take ownership and when they can stop looking to you for, was that right? Well, today I was teaching somebody uh, who is a, he is a, uh, uh, well, okay, just to answer your question absolutely directly, um, I think it's very subtle and you just, you just like slowly grow into something and you don't even necessarily know you're there and then you kind of like wake up and say, Wow, I'm actually I, I actually really know what I'm doing, and I and I don't need to to ask permission um, in the way Elisa's talking about. But um, but you always are curious, not not in the way she's talking about. You're always curious. Well, um, collaborative. Collaboratively, yeah. You're always curious to to get an an accurate reflection of where you're at and so then you know even if you have accumulated quite a bit of skill of course you want to you know go to your colleagues or whatever and say um you know what do you think of this Uh, but it but i don't think it carries the full weight that it does when you're less accomplished um so I don't think there's like a specific point. It's just like you get this feeling like I know what I'm doing um, and it's fine uh, unless you think it isn't. And then you probably wouldn't be asking anyway. You'd probably, you know, wait, you'd probably wait. But it's, you know, you're talking about artistically growing up. Like yes. in yes. a way, like when do you know you're, when do you know, when did you know, Rachel, that you were actually a grown up? Oh, I don't. That you were an adult. I don't think I'm there yet. Honestly, <laughs> but but if we spoke, you know, when you were twenty one, I guarantee you, you thought you were a grown up. Oh, it's true. No, I've. I mean, I've. <laughs> At least I did. Yeah, I've. Right? I've been. I've been fairly grown up for for many years, I suppose. Um, but but when the feeling of it, when did you have that sense? And maybe it maybe it's similar to, to the same thing that you're talking about, hmm. you know, in the arts. As an artist. Yeah. You know, like, how do you know that? What is it that tells you that? Well, I think the, the, the real danger with sort of classical teaching in some ways is that there are many teachers who never want you to become autonomous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that, because it means that they no longer have a purpose, you know, mm-hmm. or they no longer have... You know, or or the friendships that have been built are then suddenly lost, or mm-hmm. you know, um, which I personally think doesn't need to be the case and shouldn't be the case. And if we all t- truly are collaborative artists, then you know, you you see each other and and your friends and you remain. But I mean, I I had possessive teachers um, that you know would say things that would be you know at at the at the same time really supportive, but then also mm-hmm. really damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you, I mean, I guess it just, it just goes to show like how important it is to have a teacher that is supportive and that, you know, really does want the best for you mm-hmm. so that you're able to recognize like, no, I am a grown up. I am, I am a mature artist now and I can make my own decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Yeah. And you, but I appreciate what you're saying about about collaboration, and that there always must be a collaboration because if there isn't, you know, then what are we doing it for? Like, if other people don't get to have a say in the sense that like they don't get to participate, then yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to ask, but Rachel, how often would you say that a teacher-student situation in voice lessons is a collaboration, <laughs> uh, or even in a coaching? I mean, more often in a coaching, I would say, but in a voice lesson, there's always a very strong hierarchical feeling there, right? 
one person knows and teaches the other person does not know and learns. And I think, I mean, I was actually just listening back yesterday and today I listened to a couple of the lessons that I did when I was in, in LA last month. And, um, I was astounded, um, because I was asking such great questions and I was getting such great answers. And I think that a lot of the time the voice lesson, and this is also very obviously a topic for a separate podcast, but I just want to touch on it here. The voice lesson is, is taken up by so much singing and not enough understanding and, and sort of try this and then you try it and it works and you're like, yay, it worked that one time, but is it going to work Congratulations. Again? Be the monkey. <laughs> You know, right. Right. And so, again. I, so, and I feel like this actually ties in perfectly to the whole, like, as I've been practicing and, and getting really curious about my voice and getting curious about the mechanics and giving my attention to what, what is functioning, what is happening inside of there. And then, and then practicing that and getting used to those feelings, um, along with that attention to detail, um, is this teacher we have now who is so uh, so focused, just laser focused, um, in the way that she teaches and her attention to everything that's going on with your mechanism is just, it's, it's ridiculously detailed and it's wonderful. And, um, anyway, I just, I, I, I felt like this, these voice lessons are the closest I've ever experienced to a collaborative experience with, um, with a voice lesson situation. And I, it's wonderful. I think there should be more of it, but I just don't think it's the majority of what's going on out there. Well, and I think maybe actually, and this is sort of, it's almost, it is a topic that's a larger topic because I think it's, it's a pattern that gets repeated. You know, we, we in general, I think in our lives are so constantly disappointed by the people that are our superiors. And, um, and because of that, any person in a position of quote unquote authority uh, becomes someone that like, it's very easy to kind of like put your dukes up, you know, and like you're going to get ready because, because some incoming. And, and I think, um, I think sometimes there, there is, there has to be a master student relationship. Mm -hmm. There has to be, mm -hmm. but you have to trust them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. how often are are people not trustworthy? Um, yeah. Right. If you're fortunate enough enough to find that person, then it's it's a real blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I would agree with that, and I would say, probably. A, as a general rule, a teacher who is the right fit for you is someone who who teaches you autonomy, someone who gives you tools that you can take and work on on your own so that you have an understanding beyond that teacher's studio Absolutely. so that wherever you go, you sort of take this this toolbox and and you you can use it without direct supervision, <laughs> you know that you that you are capable of understanding your own voice because that's, that's one thing our teacher talks about constantly is, you know, each instrument, each vocal instrument is really individual and the way that it's set up and that the way that your mouth is shaped, the way that your throat is shaped, the way that you are, even your, your head, your sinuses, your, your whole body, like it's just everything's so individual and you're the one who is responsible to understand where your weaknesses are, what the pitfalls are in your own voice and where your strengths are as well. So that you know what to work on, you know what to strengthen and you know what you can rely on and what still needs your attention, you know, and it's, it's, it's about, and that there's no way that a teacher can ever do that for you because they're not you, they're not inside of your body. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the teacher who I've met so many of these, the majority of teachers actually do sort of develop this codependent relationship of making you very dependent on them. Um, and never really, I mean, there've been a variety of experiences with a variety of teachers, but never really putting everything out there in a way 
that you can take home with you and understand independent of them, but sort of keeping things a little ambiguous and maybe they don't do it on purpose. Maybe in their own minds, it's also ambiguous to them, you know, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'll just say that I'm thankful for the person I'm working with now because I do find it to be a, a straightforward, clear and collaborative experience and a with my, yeah, and, and putting me in the driver's seat and yes. making me the owner of my instrument. Right. And, and just one, uh, additional thought is that maybe the ambiguity that you had before that, that kind of frustration that you had in not having all the answers was also a blessing because it, it forces you to look deeper within and as you said, um, uh, I forgot what you said. <laughs> I forgot exactly how you said it. But um, this kind of this journey of of this, you know, it's really it's really a journey of self discovery. Whether you have a teacher or you don't have a teacher, or whether you have a good teacher or a bad teacher, because the whole time you're the one that knows that it's a good fit and it's not a good fit. Or it's a, not a good fit. You're you're guiding the whole thing, always, as the mm-hmm. student, and that that, you know, that continues through the through your whole life. So it's it's it really is a journey of self discovery. And and if you're really mm-hmm. frustrated in one thing, you know that that that's not the direction for you, and you know that that te- whatever this teacher was saying. Maybe it could be true for other people, but it's not true for you. So um, I think it's it's putting the the responsibility back where it belongs on you, and 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 you just keep going, you know, sort of looking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and 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 I would say in in most, if not all, cases, you will find what you're looking for eventually. You know, you might be struggling for a while and then all of a sudden you'll you'll hear a recording or you're you'll you or even run into a teacher that will give you exactly what you're looking for. Um, but but you're the one that has that sense of it. To thine own self be true. There we go. That's that's what I have to say. And Teddy Vol- Roosevelt didn't say that. <laughs> didn't didn't. Right, he right. may have said it at some point, but it, it, it didn't start with him. Yeah, right. Exactly. Awesome. Thank right. you, Scott. Thank you so much for being on. This was here. a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank cool. you. Nice All right. To, nice to meet you, Elisa. Yeah, very nice to meet you too. Can I say a closing thought real quick? Go, Go for it. So I was just thinking this. I was out. Um, it was yesterday. I was out on a run, and I was just thinking, you know what? To be successful at anything. You have to know what works, what is right, and you have to know what doesn't serve you. And I think that I think that that's as true of singing as it is of anything else that we pursue in life. Yep. And um, and that's the distinction that you need a teacher to help you make sometimes until you can make it on your own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or or and sometimes you need uh, sometimes you need the the help of of kind and loving colleagues to uh, to help you understand that too what's what's working and what's not serving in this situation but anyway it seemed very profound to me when I was on my run it is (laughs) it's an important thing Mm -hmm. and we keep Mm -hmm. being shown these things at different times in different ways to help us you know as we get on that journey Mm -hmm. so awesome wonderful all right wonderful to have you Scott thank you it was a pleasure yay